Okay, let's pray together. Our great God, we thank you that you're the ultimate father. You mean so much to us. You've done so much for us. We look forward to spending eternity with you. God, there's so much you want to teach us. and Lord, I believe this morning's message is key to successfully living the Christian life. If we miss this, then we've missed the whole thing. But if we could truly embrace this, there's no stopping you and the good that you will accomplish in us and through us. Thank you for being such an awesome father. Bless the study of your word in Christ's name we pray. And Lord, we do pray for our pastor and his family. Is there a way? We're missing them, but so excited for this time that they can be refreshed and grow and learn and experience and enjoy each other. Bless them, Lord, especially on this, the Lord's day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to all the dads who are blessed with this awesome privilege and responsibility. Being a dad myself, I've learned lots about the nature, character, and heart of God our Father by having children. When you first hold your precious child, you think, I would lay down my life for this special gift from God. A love swells up inside of you as you experience this tremendous bond. You want to give them all you can. You're willing to sacrifice as never before. You want to protect them, teach them, support them, care for them in every way. And you start to realize this is how your Heavenly Father feels about you. He who did not spare his own son, but offered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Sometimes we sing that song, you're a good, good father. It's who you are, it's who you are. And I am loved by you. It's who I am, it's who I am. You're perfect in all of your ways. This morning we're considering one of the eight Beatitudes that Jesus gives us in his Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, verse 3. And this is the very first of the Beatitudes. Now, God's goal in working with us, in us, uh, living in us and through us, is later stated in Matthew 5, 48. And this is building up to that. He says, you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Every kid grows up with a strong desire to make their parents proud. <laughs> to please them, to imitate them. Well, Jesus gives us the formula for such success, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Now, keep in mind, before we look at this, God's ways are higher than our ways. His ways may not make much sense to our natural minds, to our human way of thinking. He operates on a whole different plane, and it's often contradictory to our way of thinking. So he says here, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How can poverty be a good thing? Well, first of all, we need to realize that we are all poor. We're all destitute. We're all, every one of us, in great need. Now, the wealthy people in Jesus' audience must have taken issue with this. We're not beggars. <laughs> You know, we're not dependent on anyone. 
In fact, we not only have barns that are filled, but we're going to tear them down and build bigger ones. Well, Jesus was not talking about physical poverty, but spiritual. You can have the nicest Sunday clothes. You can be related to some of the nicest people. You may be popular, successful, an overall good person. Yet as Romans 3, 10 through 12 states, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Denny Sant, who preached for us last week, quoted from Revelation 3, 14 through 17. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and poor and miserable and blind and naked. Our outward appearance, our status in this world, all our possessions have nothing to do with what is taking place inside of us, inwardly, spiritually. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, there's a Greek word for poor that's used of the widow. Remember her in Mark 12, 41 through 44? And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amounted to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned all she had to live on. Now the Greek word translated there poor, and speaking of this poor widow, is penacross. The Greek word penacross. And it means poor. It means needy. It means having very little. But when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, he uses an entirely different Greek word. It's the Greek word potokos, P-T-O-K-A-S, potokos. And that word, translated poor, carries the idea of a desperate beggar that is not even able to work or improve their situation on their own. The picture this word gives in the Greek is of a poor, broken, needy, desperate beggar who uses one hand to cover his face in shame and the other hand to reach out, hoping for the kindness of some passerby to help him because he's not able to do anything on his own. Well, the widow Jesus speaks of in Mark 12, she was poor, but at least she had two small copper coins she could drop into the treasury. The Patokos poor is totally bankrupt, devoid of any and all means to support themselves, to better themselves, to rescue themselves. Blessed are the Patokos in spirit, the one who humbly, undeservingly, in desperate need, turns to God as their only source of true help.
See, the reality is we can't save ourselves. We can't take away our own sins or attempt to undo them by contrasting good deeds. We're sinners through and through and can only be saved if someone so much greater than ourselves, without any sin of their own, would offer their life on our behalf. And that's why Jesus came. He lived as one of us. But he's the spotless Lamb of God who took upon himself human flesh and then would offer up that body, shedding his blood on our behalf as the full and complete payment for all our sin. In Luke 5, 30 and 32, we read, The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Also Luke 15, 1 through 7. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus, or he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is telling us that the one who realizes they're lost, the ones who know their own spiritual poverty and inability to save themselves, that that person is truly blessed. Blessed because they see their need for God. And they place their trust in the only one who can save them, the Lord Jesus Christ. They've given up on self and are completely relying on the Lord. Galatians 6.3 If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives? Oh, he's not deceiving anybody else, right? Because <laughs> they know him. <laughs> but he could deceive himself, thinking he's something when he's nothing. Romans 12.3 For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. It's okay to say I'm a sinner because sinners are the ones that need a savior. <laughs> a passage that has always encouraged me, a passage that gives the simple hope, <laughs> and in fact, this was the first passage I ever preached on many years ago, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Here we read, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are 
so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's ways are higher than our ways. Blessed are the assertive. Is that what we're reading here? Blessed are those who know how to step on and over others to get what they want. Blessed are the proud, the arrogant, the strong, the mighty, the powerful. No. Blessed are the spiritually destitute who see God as their only true source for help and humbly turn toward him. Now, who is Jesus speaking to? Well, he's speaking to everyone. You know, this one preacher said, nobody gets into the kingdom of God. Nobody goes through that door standing tall and proud. (laughs) He has to bow low to enter the kingdom of God. But he's calling his disciples together. He's bringing his people. He's saying, this is what's involved in being a part of my kingdom. And this is the first beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to us. He's speaking to his followers. He's speaking to his children. This doesn't only apply to somebody out there who has all these problems and needs God. It applies to me. I'm a sinner. I'm spiritually impoverished. I need God. We were not only dependent on him for salvation to deliver us from hell, the inevitable consequences of our sin. We're dependent upon him every day in every way that we live our lives in this world. Our key biblical truth came from John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How dependent are you upon God? Do you talk with him about everything? Do you seek his input? Do you desire to do his will? Even when his way doesn't make a lot of sense to you or is really hard? True dependency upon God will be revealed by your prayer life. How often do you pray? Just when things get really bad, but the rest, I can handle that myself. How often do you read, study, prayerfully meditate on the Word of God? Or do you look to your own wisdom to guide you through the decisions you have to make on a daily basis? We're all weak, we're all in great need. But some of us perhaps realize it a little bit more. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected 
in weakness. Paul goes on to say, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We're strong when we're weak because it's at that point in our lives that we are utterly dependent upon God. I had surgery, as you know, uh, two months ago, and it was probably the worst time of my life. <laughs> you know, I went into the hospital extremely sick, and uh, you know, I didn't actually, doctor didn't do anything until about six hours later, and I was in so much pain. Then they finally gave me the CAT scan and said the uh, diverticulitis has caused a rupture in my intestine, and the poison's in my body now. That's why I have the fever. That's why I'm as sick as I am. And so you're going to have to stay, and they're going to have to do a procedure. They said called it an operation. They'd have to go in there and try to clean it all out and uh, put a drain in and do all this stuff. And, okay. Well, first day wasn't so bad after I got through the initial pain. And, you know, when I had the surgery, I was asleep. So, uh, but when I woke up and and started experiencing a very dry mouth. <laughs> and they said, well, that's normal because the anesthesia actually causes that because they don't want the blood all pouring out, so they try to give you this stuff that's going to help contain things better. Okay, but can I have an ice chip? Uh, no, the doctor said nothing to drink for two days. I said, two days? <laughs> my tongue was stuck to my mouth, and it was horrible. And... I could not sleep at all. My body was retaining this incredible amount of fluid. I looked down at my legs. My legs were swollen like this. Uh, I, I have asthma anyway, but I, I was gasping for air. I was like, <gasps> just trying to breathe. I felt so horrible. And then, uh, you know, they decided to take the catheter out. Oh, this won't hurt. <laughs> I yanked, <laughs> I screamed, <laughs> blood everywhere, <laughs> you know, I said, is this normal? I mean, this is kind of embarrassing to say, but after that, when I peed, my pee went, <laughs> I don't know what they did to me, <laughs> they wrecked something in there, <laughs> and then they kept telling me, pass gas, you got to pass gas, this is your problem, you got to pass gas, I can't, well you got to, you got to, all right, so that night I tried to pass gas and diarrhea everywhere, I'm like, oh no, I knew I shouldn't have passed gas, <laughs> I pushed the buzzer, nobody comes, I waited about 10 or 15 minutes, standing there covered, my bed is covered, the floor is covered, have a tube coming out of my stomach. I have two IVs hooked up to my arm. So I gathered some paper towels and just started scooping it up. <laughs> you know? And here I am, you know, saying, God, where are you? <laughs> Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. <laughs> well, you know, it just seemed to go from bad to worse. <laughs> the breathing got worse. The dryness got worse. The pain was worse. No sleep at all, not even 30 minutes for two nights in a row. And uh, 
you know, no matter what time I call for the nurse, they just wouldn't come or they'd take forever to come. You know, one time I was felt like I had to go to the bathroom. I go, oh, it's not going to happen again. I got to get to the bathroom. So I'm rushing myself to the bathroom and I pulled my IVs out. <laughs> Blood everywhere. Here we go again. <laughs> you know. But you know, I have to say, as much as physically I was the lowest that I have ever been, spiritually I felt so close and connected to God. And all I could say is that he says, for when I am weak, then am I strong. It was during those nights that I cried out to God that I prayed for you because God brought you to my mind and heart. It was during those times that God spoke to me. And he said, this is what God told me, okay? He said, you don't have to add one more thing to your repertoire or to the things that you do for me to like you or accept you. I'll take you just as you are. I love you for who you are, just as you are. You don't have to add one more thing. And I started thinking about that because I'm ashamed to say this, but you know how many times I've thought in my mind, I don't want to die yet. I haven't done enough for the Lord. I haven't dealt with this in my life. I haven't straightened that out. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. I haven't changed this. I need more time. I need more time. Well, during those two nights in the hospital, I said, God, take me. God, take me. I am so ready to be with you. I mean, I would hate to leave my wife and my children, my friends, my ministry. But, you know, God could take me anytime he wants. I am ready. Not because I've done this or done that, but because he's my father and he loves me just as I am. And that's how I feel about my kids. My kids don't have to prove anything to me. The smartest ones are the least smart. It doesn't matter. I love them all just the same. They're my children. I had to go for an ordination exam many years ago. I was called to pastor a church and I was there for about a year. And they said, well, it's time to get ordained to become official. And so I had never been to Bible school. The church that I grew up in believes strongly that we should be able to teach you and give you a Bible school education at the church. And so we had tests in our Sunday school class. We had to study all the basic Bible doctrines. You had to get 100 on your test. It didn't matter how many times you took it, but you had to pass the basic Bible doctrine test with 100. <laughs> okay, and on and on and on. And then I started teaching classes myself. And, you know, when you're teaching, you got to be prepared for people asking questions. So you have to really study it and get to know it. And so for about 12 years, you know, I was at that uh, church and I studied hard and, and worked hard in various ministries, whether it be youth ministries or assisting the pastor or church visitation or nursing home ministries or whatever, you know, all the things that you guys are doing here. And so anyway, when I was called to pastor that church, I left that church that I grew up in and came to pastor this church. Now I need to go for an ordination. Well, they told me, prepare a doctrinal statement. We want a statement as to what you believe and why. Ended up being 35 type pages. <laughs> you know, and I had to submit that to, there were, uh, there were 30 people that would be at this ordination council. 20 were pastors and 10 were elders from the area. Now, some of these pastors, they had their doctorates. Uh, some of them had large churches and 
you know, I knew them, and sometimes we partnered with them and did things as churches. But I thought, I'm going to come before them, and they're going to ask me questions. I, I can't do this. But I had to do it. And I just remember I constantly prayed, God, I am so weak. God, I am so incapable of this. How can I get through this? And God kept saying to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. I was in the bathroom. They were all assembled in the conference room. And I'm in the bathroom on my knees. Oh, God. Oh, God, it's time. It's time. Now, keep in mind, I'm the person who said to my teacher when she said, you have to do an oral book report, I said, give me a zero. Give me an F. There is no way I'm going to get up in front of that group of people and say anything. Now, here I am having to come before these 20 pastors and 10 elders and answer their questions. And, and as I was kneeling there praying, the pastors, my pastors, knocking on the door, Joe, they're waiting for you. Come on. I go, just another minute, just another minute. And then I thought of Saul hiding among the baggage when it was time to be anointed. <laughs> And I just was crying out to God. And, you know, as I was praying, God was giving me faith. And you know what the end result of my prayer was? God helped me to actually enjoy this experience. Now that was a prayer of faith. So I went out there and I stood up and I looked at them all sitting at desks. <laughs> I was standing in the front. I said, okay, Joe, first uh, tell us why... Tell us how you were converted to Christ, how you came to faith in Christ, and also why you think you're called to be a pastor. Okay? I started speaking. And all of a sudden, something happened inside of me. Joe stepped out of the way, and God took over. And it was incredible. I just was up there. It was three and a half hours long that I stood up there. And they asked every question possible. And part of, they, they later said, because you hadn't been to official Bible school or seminary, we had to give you a little bit extra <laughs> and make sure you knew what you were supposed to know. So for three and a half hours, they questioned me about everything. And what would you do in this situation? What about that scenario? What about Hebrews the here? And what about uh, this passage there? And what about this? What about that? And the words were coming out. And I thought of, you know, I had just read something like a couple of days prior uh, in a theology book. And I remember thinking, wow, that's really fascinating. Well, didn't you know that question came up? <laughs> and I just thought about what I had just read. <laughs> and I was able to answer that. And, and it was an incredible time. And I, I went out afterwards. And then they voted. And, um, you know, they brought me in. And they just were shaking their heads. And they said, we can't believe it. You know, uh, and, and it was the grace of God. And they said, you, knew, you know more than people coming out of seminary. We do this all the time. We assemble these councils. But your knowledge of scripture and your, your practical ministry experience, we unanimously support you to be in the pastorate along with us. And I was so encouraged. They had a second ordination after me. That guy failed. He was older, a lot smarter. Uh, but I was so dependent upon God. And, you know, I think of the things that I do. You know, a lot of you comment, Joe, you cook, you work with kids, you 
can preach, you could teach, you could do this, you could do that. You know what? I am the weakest among us. <laughs> I had maybe part of the worst background. <laughs> you know, how do I love the way I do? I didn't know love. I didn't experience love as a child. How do I know? You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. God has been my teacher. God has been my instructor. I remember in carpentry, I was determined to be a carpenter and I'm going to build something. I built this desk. Man, it looked terrible. <laughs> had all these things sticking out of it. and I thought maybe if I paint it and the paint I found was green and something else and I used two different colors. And, eh. But then as I grew in my faith in God and there was a carpenter in our church said, hey, come with me. I want you to work with me. And he taught me. You know, in time, I was running the construction crew and he never even showed up anymore. I don't know, probably built 40 to 50 houses from scratch. There's the foundation. Build a house. Okay, give me the plans. You know, I didn't know how to read a plan, but God gave me the grace to do it. I didn't know how to cook. I'd watch other people. I'd learn from them. I'd say, oh, that tasted good. Oh, that didn't taste good. I think I'll add that. Oh, next time I'm not going to put that in. <laughs> you know, you learn as you go along, but you keep that humble heart saying, God, I am not great at anything, but you are. <laughs> By the grace of God, I am what I am. I love that scripture. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul goes on to say, but his grace toward me did not prove vain, for I labored more abundantly than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God at work in me. God is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He gives you the ability and the desire to do his will. And where does it all begin? Where does all this begin? All the great ways God wants to use you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The ones who see their desperate need for God. The ones who cry out to him for help and say, God, unless you do it, I'll miserably fail. And believe me, I've had my failings. Because whenever Joe tries to take control, Joe messes up royally. But when I let God do what God wants to do, he's an amazing God. And I see some incredible talent here because God has invested in your lives. God has poured into you. And he's going to use you in some amazing ways. He really is. Let's pray. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, you said, suffer the little ones to come unto me and forbid them not. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Who does the kingdom of heaven belong to? The children. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good intention to give you the kingdom. Who does he give the kingdom to? The little flock, the young ones, the child. Lord, we come to you as children. Lord, we come to you as children. And God, we come confessing our desperate need for you. In the hospital, it was easy for me to realize I needed you. There was no other way except through you and your help. And you're, you're the one I had hope in. But God, what about when we're successful? What about when we get that promotion at work? What about when things are going good in our family? What about the money coming in is more than enough to meet our needs? What about during these times? Do we still sense our need to get on our knees and say, God, apart from you, I could do nothing? And I don't think you meant that we can't do anything, 
but nothing that's of lasting value, nothing that's of eternal value, nothing that really pleases you. So God, help us to live that life of dependency upon our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.